Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access. Access to not only our great newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. What would happen if China launched a full-scale amphibious assault against Taiwan? This is a question that has preoccupied American war planners and presumably their counterparts in Beijing and Taipei and Tokyo and in other capitals, really since the KMT's retrenchment on the island in 1949. The question has, of course, gained new currency in recent years, whether you think the likelihood of such a scenario has markedly increased or not. So now, how do war planners answer or attempt to answer that question? Well, by staging wargaming exercises. Today, we are going to look at one such exercise, one that stands out because unlike the vast majority, which are conducted by war colleges or at Annapolis or within the Pentagon and are classified for the most part, this one is, in its methods, its assumption, its execution, and its results, public. They were all made public, and I think that's to its great credit. Titled, The First Battle of the Next War, Wargaming a Chinese Invasion of Taiwan, it took place in 2022 and was published in January 2023. The war game was conducted under the auspices of CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and was put together by Mark F. Kansian, his son Matthew Kansian, and Eric Hegenbotham. The latter two were the designers of the war games. It assumed an amphibious assault and, in the base scenario, direct American military participation in defense of Taiwan, and we'll talk about other assumptions of the game as well. It ran through two dozen iterations with different tweaks to variables, as we will see. It's uh, quite extensive in its scope and a very interesting thing. Now, there are folks I really respect who tend to be dismissive of such exercises. One very good friend has spoken of grown-ass men going pew-pew-pew with little ships and rolling dice like in Dungeons & Dragons. I, I confess I, I, I've led to that way. I maybe still lean that way. But whether you see war games as, as basically only a little bit above the level of you know Milton Bradley, oh, you sunk my battleship, or you see them as really valid, valuable, and, and instructive approximations of likely outcomes, uh, we need to look at what they're all about, and most importantly, what they purport to tell us. So with me to talk about all the pros and cons of war games, and uh, this one in particular, is Lyle Goldstein. Director for Asia Engagement at Defense Priorities, and a visiting professor at Brown University. Lyle has been on the program twice before, once to talk about his really excellent book, Meeting China Halfway, which I, I really wish more people in Washington had read and internalized back when it was published. 
uh, and more recently to talk about North Korea. Lyle was formerly a professor at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Lyle Goldstein, welcome back to Seneca. Great to see you. Hi there, Kaiser. Hi, everyone. So glad to be back on. Yeah, fantastic. I'm glad you could take the time to join us. Lyle, you have told me that in your many years, I think it's two decades, at, at the Naval War College, you didn't actually participate much in either planning or gaming out uh, the many war games that are, are staged there. And, you know, they're classified anyway, so I wouldn't ask you to say anything specific about those games. But maybe you could give the listeners a sense for just how important they are at the War College or in other institutes uh, you know, affiliated with the DoD. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about maybe the history of wargaming. I mean, I know, for instance, that uh, War Plan Orange, which was, you know, the U.S. plan for a war against the Japanese Empire, developed, you know, long before Pearl Harbor, uh, actually seems to have grown out of uh, wargaming exercises like these, no? Yeah, that's right, Kaiser. Yeah, and I want to say up front, I was not in the wargaming department and, and really, you know, honestly, I tried to stay out of those uh, games. I, I was, you know, more or less a scholar, a China expert there, leading the China Institute for a while and really trying to organize our China research. And, you know, occasionally some war gamers would come and ask me questions, things like that. And I would give lectures occasionally to them over the years. But I would state that within how the, uh, the Pentagon planning process works, the Navy planning process, I, I think war games are incredibly important. And going around uh, from my 20 years at Naval War College, I can say that the the gaming effort there is is not only you know uh, massive, but it is also treated as sort of the crown jewels of the institution, hmm. and and I think that is that goes well beyond Naval War College to the other places where this is done, and and yeah, part of that is the storied history of War Plan Orange, which uh, is a fascinating story, probably with some lessons for us today. But the United States started war gaming against Japan in 1919, if you can believe it. We were allies with Japan in World War One. Uh, and then uh, right turned around and started preparing for war. Um, so I guess wow. that tells you how things work. You know what's changed uh, anyway. But by 1924, this was described as War Plan Orange. Uh, took on a more official status. But here's the interesting thing I learned about it is that in the 1930s, the plans were were majorly readjusted to take account of the fact that Japan's navy was really increasing at a very rapid pace, and and mm-hmm. this had some major effects on. U.S. planning, we basically realized that we could not just, you know, uh, originally I think the plan was to send the fleet over, save the Philippines, and, and you know, give Japan a, a mighty bruising in the very early stage of the war. But that was all carefully examined, decided not to be realistic, and, and came up with a much more realistic policy, which we pursued successfully in the war, which was this kind of ver- rather cautious island hopping strategy, which did not try to get out ahead of ourselves. So, yeah, it was quite successful. But you know, I would, I dare say that there are some similarities and that caution that, that the war planning process imbued our decision makers, I think it's highly applicable today. We'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We will. Um, so let's talk specifically about, I mean, we could go on a lot about the history. I think that that's fascinating uh, and I'd love to read up more about that. Uh, but given your knowledge of war games, even though, you know, you were distant from them at the Naval War College, is your sense that this one differed significantly from the others you've seen run? After all, those are all classified, so we don't know the details of how they're run. I don't really know whether the Kantians or, or Mr. Hagenbotham had direct exposure to DOD or any of the War College games themselves, but were they significantly different? Not to my knowledge. One can imagine uh, in classified games there's there's more fidelity, more access to you know higher classifications of intelligence, things like that. But, right. but no, I mean, I think generally, as I understand it, the approach uh, is pretty similar. And now look, there's this, I think, a, quite a revealing passage in this first, you know, I'll call it the first battle report from the CSIS game, where they talk about these classified games. And they say, you know, interestingly, they say that some of this has leaked out into the press. And traditionally, right. the, the results have been very high losses and and very pessimistic outcomes. That's what they say. And then, you know, they tend to kind of, how to put it, they're quite dismissive, I think, of that, uh, you know, for whatever that's worth. There was a, a quite a famous RAND analyst, I believe he was an assistant secretary of defense, uh, David Akmanek, I believe. And he had said something to the effect of, you know, the U.S. keeps, you know, we do this over and over and the U.S. keeps getting its ass handed to it by the Chinese, which, you know, 
I remember when I first read that, uh, I, I sort of thought, wow, that, you know, that that's, this is interesting that this is coming into the, uh, into the public realm to say the least. But again, we, we don't know what's in those games and we don't really know with any fidelity, the results. So it's all, that's all behind the dark, uh, the, behind the black curtain as it were. Yeah. Yeah. So Lyle, you've said that these are incredibly important to the Naval War College and to the DOD. What, I mean, I know it's a really broad question, but what is the value of wargaming? Well, I do think it's, it's, it's extremely valuable. Somebody I admire very much uh, once said that you can't prevent a tragedy unless you can envision it. Hmm. Why? Because to prevent it, we have to fully understand the tragedy, if you will. It's an uncomfortable topic. The idea that we can sit around a table and talk about tens of thousands of people getting killed. I mean, it's in a way, it's, it's an awful endeavor to undertake. But I think that to my estimate, even though it's a rather a dark subject, it, it's uh, critically important because it, you know, it allows us to see that tragedy and therefore to think really hard about how it can be prevented. And I would say, uh, of course, and generally think that U.S. national security policy and defense policy has a lot of problems. And, you know, one of them has been a kind of failure to anticipate certain issues, you know, whether it's the Pentagon Papers or the Afghanistan papers, uh, we've seen this again and again. So, so it's a related problem. But can we use all the tools at our disposal to look at, through the crystal ball and see what might happen? But I think this has to be done with a lot of modesty, right? Uh, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. warfare is you know inherently complex, fog, friction. There are so many unknowns. I mean, the, the number of factors in play. You know, I don't think we could ever develop a good algorithm. And you know, some would argue that even the attempt here is kind of how to put it, it's, it's immodest, you know, it, it suggests we could predict. And, and I, I do think, you know, that maybe one of the cautions coming out of this is, is just, we, we need a very high level of modesty here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. No, this isn't the first Taiwan invasion scenario war game that has been held just the first large scale publicly available one, I, I believe. How significant is it that this has been released publicly? I think it's incredibly significant. I track the whole literature across the board on China military scenarios, but the Taiwan scenario, you know, is sort of the scenario par excellence. That is, it is clearly the most dangerous one, uh, I would say, in all respects. And, you know, following the literature, I I can say I've seen some attempts to get this close, but this I've never seen this kind of fidelity. And I do want to strongly commend it to people and, and congratulate the authors on, you know, extraordinary work here. And that's one reason I, I wanted to bring this to the attention of Seneca listeners, yourself included, obviously, but the, the idea was to, you know, start a debate, but, but of course that debate hinges on people reading it closely and, and, you know, not just reading the takeaways or something like that, but really getting into the fine print. I, I think that's, it's absolutely necessary. And so, you know, again, kudos to the authors for putting it out there obviously was done with all unclassified sources, which is not easy. And by doing so, I think they have taken our understanding, you know, several levels further. So I, so I really urge all people interested in U.S.-China relations and in particularly on the, in the defense aspects, which obviously there's so much more to U.S.-China relations. I'm a, I'm a good Seneca listener, so I know that. <laughs> and, I'm glad, and I'm so glad that Seneca is here to remind us frequently that, that let's focus on so many other important areas of this relationship. But this one is absolutely very important, as you know, Kaiser, and, and thanks for making time for it. But I, I really urge people to look at it, set some time aside, read it carefully. This is so important to the future of our planet. Yeah, and we will have, obviously, a link to the report. And although I'm not acquainted with its authors, I mean, if they happen to be listening or if they are, you know, catch wind of this, I would love to speak to, uh, to one or to all of them after this this show. And I, I would be listening closely to that, for sure. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk a little bit about how war games like this one are actually set up. Can you describe the physical setup, the, the game board, as it were, and, and the, the markers, uh, the dice, and, and the a role of computers in you know, generating contingency and things like that? I'm really curious about what this looks like physically. I hesitate here to make too many comments because I don't I don't think this was discussed very much in the report that's available. There were some, you know, there was a couple of pictures of maybe the game board 
and and some of the parameters. I mean, look, you have to understand that any, I don't want to speak for the authors, but I, I think they would readily admit that any game of this kind is by definition a vast simplification of numerous human inter- interactions, you know, between humans and machines and technology. And therefore, within the game, you make these difficult calls about this level of simplification. And that has to do with, you know, how big is the hex? You know, if anybody has played war games out there, you know that the actual size and and laydown of the parameters of the spaces on the map, that influences deeply how the pieces are able to move around the board and so forth. So I think there's some of that. I imagine a lot of that is done by computers, certainly at Naval War College was, but these aggregations of force, you know, in a way, I think that is, and the authors themselves, I think, say in the report that that's, you know, in a way, the hardest, for example, how can you account for morale, you know? Right. So lot, so many intangibles, but also, you know, they say quite clearly, and here, you know, I think is one of the main points of this whole exercise, that is, we have never seen a, other than what we're seeing in Ukraine, we have never seen, you know, high intensity warfare, certainly not in the uh, naval and air realm of the kind that would occur in uh, such a Taiwan scenario. Never seen that. And perhaps the last time we did see it, frankly, was 1945. That's an awful long time ago. Right. Another mentor of mine used to say, military operations, as we conceive of them, are like asking a surgeon to operate every 40 years or so. Wow. Can you imagine? I mean, think about that, right? I mean, surgeons are trained day to day and they have the you know most uh, up-to-date techniques and technologies and practices. But in, on the military side, the amount of data you have, you know, what are we talking about? We're talking about learning from the Falklands War? Yeah, you bet. There's a huge, huge Chinese literature, by the way, Chinese military literature study of the Falklands War. Why? Because that is the last high-intensity air and naval combat that the world has seen. Wow. I also think about the role of contingency. I mean, you, you mentioned morale and other intangibles, but even something as simple as, as weather. I mean, in history, we can think of a couple of great examples, you know, the Two, in fact, Mongol invasions of Japan that were scuttled, that were, you know, that were, were completely ruined uh, because of, of weather, the, you know, the kamikaze, right, the divine wind. And, and then, of course, the Spanish Armada, you know, in 1588, also just because of weather. I mean, that it was completely wrecked. I mean, is this something you can just roll dice for, or is this maybe so understood now? I mean, you know, our forecasting capabilities have reached a point where Weather just can be assumed away as as a variable. No, I think I think you raise a good point. Um, weather, geography, certainly these play a huge role. But it's also true to say that progress of you know information science, intelligence gathering. I mean, some often we use D Day as an analogy, and I, I think sure. it's quite appropriate. And the authors of this study do uh, frequently allude to the Normandy invasion from 1944, the Allied invasion of Normandy. But I mean, then think about gee, gosh, uh, General Eisenhower. He didn't have any helicopters. He didn't have any drones. He didn't right. have he didn't have any overhead satellite intelligence to look at. So you realize just the information environment has changed to an incredible degree. And so w- while we should absolutely draw on these analogies, try to understand them, and that's one of the difficulties. And and again, uh, lots of credit to the authors. They do. If, quite a good job, I think, at drawing, you know, historical examples. But, uh, you know, I do have some differences uh, in where they made some judgments, as we'll talk about, I think. But, but I mean, yeah, we will. Uh, yeah, but weather, absolutely. And by the way, you know, China has, has, has a, quite a, a vastly improved weather forecasting effort. You know, a lot of it is directed at these massive hurricanes that hit China occasionally. But it, you betcha a lot of it is also dedicated to uh, military uh, applications. So what sorts of assumptions are built into an exercise like this? I mean, one would think that you'd have to have a, a very good idea of each participant's, not just their capabilities, but also their own orders of battle, right? What, what they plan to do. I don't know how well we know China's or even some of our, our allies' orders of battle. We don't know what their warfighting assumptions are. I mean, even the, the basic scenario here, which, you know, posits a massive amphibious assault, is, is that what China would do necessarily? I mean, there are all sorts of people who talk about blockades or, or other things that are sort of short of full amphibious assault. So I don't know how much we know this with confidence, and, and I don't know how one decides what variables to plug in or what assumptions to plug in. Well, you're right, and, and that's why this is so 
vitally important and and also but it's important that we read it critically and that we bring you know fresh eyes fresh ideas to this people of all different backgrounds um also uh partly to just too many variables and so you know again i think the authors the report would readily concede that they had to pick and choose you know and make some judgments you know and they're bringing uh they're bringing a lot of subject matter experts of course and many of them are named in the report and very qualified but uh you know i think and people have differences about how they see this now a couple of fine points there i mean you alluded to the orders of battle uh that's you know that is really important and one just point of caution that i would say is look i'd say you know we have a pretty good understanding of what American forces look like. But even there, I think there's probably a lot of things that are held, you know, capabilities that are not discussed. Sure. Uh, let's put it that way for sure. Hope so. <laughs> uh, right. Hope so. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, I'm quite confident on the Chinese side, there are a lot of capabilities that aren't discussed. So, I mean, it's almost, we're, we're operating almost in this fog and we're doing the best we can. And traditionally, you know, people draw on this IISS annual reports on the military balance as a kind of well, we can all agree this is pretty decent as far as an order set of orders of battle. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's where the authors took their orders of battle. But I have long been concerned, you know, that they that we put too much stock in this, that we are overconfident. After all, uh, China has enormous, uh, enormous country, not a lot of transparency there, a lot of warehouses, a lot of underground facilities. So I, you know, I frequently reminded people that we may think this is what China's military looks like, but we may not uh, truly know. You raise the issue of these different, how much the scenario can look very different. Mm, mm. And and there I would just make the quick comment that among people who focus on this day to day, we we tend to think of what at, le- at least, you know, four possible options. There is a kind of sort of political pressure campaign, you know, essentially intimidation. China's already mm-hmm. in that, honestly, if we look at, you know, earlier in April, uh, there was that giant exercise. And then in, in back in August, 2022 there you know during the pelosi visit there was uh you know they were shooting missiles over the island right and uh going over the median line and so forth although that's continued but so so you could say that's already going on but but then you know so stepped up from that yeah, though obviously. yeah yeah two two other uh steps up from there of course are the blockade which is uh, much discussed and rightly so and then the, the authors of this report sort of put lay that aside say that's a that's a good topic it may be more likely than this but that's not what we're looking at. and i can tell you why in a way i think we we should also look at this amphibious invasion, not just blockade. But then there's one interim step there too, which I would call limited attack, and that would be a, a Chinese assault, let's say on um, well, on one it could be on the offshore islands. Although I kind of doubt that. I, I do think a attack on the Penghu's is possible. Uh, mm-hmm. The way that was in the 17th century, that's how the Chinese conquered uh, Taiwan through the Penghu's, and Penghu's are just 25 miles off the western coast, so that would be a huge blow. Again, I don't. In a way, I think. That has, I, th- I think the minuses outweigh the pluses if uh, I'm trying to step into the shoes of a Chinese strategist. But, but it is an important scenario to consider. And then, of course, the scenario under that we're talking about today generally is this all-out amphibious assault. Right, right, right. So each, each team presumably has humans playing the roles, right? I mean, I, I know we're, we're all familiar or at least sort of familiar with, with the outlines of red team, blue team exercises that, you know, that we, we had all running all through the Cold War. Um, but how much ability do the players have to actually deviate from what they understand are the country that it's playing and its warfighting plans? In other words, how much agency do the players have? Yeah, it's a little bit hard to tell from the, my little exposure to these kind of games. Uh, I would say that they frequently, you know, it said, don't fight the game you know, try to really try to play within the rules because there's there's always that tension, right? And and in a way, what the war gamers are looking for is to yield these creative insights that that either red or blue could could play or green. But so there is that possibility. But I do, again, I give a lot of credit to the organizers of this game and and the the writers of the report that they, they... have tried to allow you to look almost to sit there with the gamers and, and kind of appreciate some of their problems. So they will occasionally throughout the report, they'll say, well, this, some players try to do this, you know, and, and they'll say, well, m- most players, most of our players playing the Chinese side opted to invade from the South. They say that, you know, that's very interesting. Right. You know, I wouldn't have known that. Another, I thought this was a fascinating insight. And again, the, I think they're quite candid about 
the results of the report. Good on them for that. They say, well, look, you know, they have assumed a nuclear decision-making. I think we'll talk about this a bit. They assume nuclear decision-making out. There are no nuclear decisions, right. nuclear weapons decisions in the game. And yet they said they still found that players tended to be concerned with escalation and to behave according, which is very interesting. So even though they were explicitly told there's no nuclear use of nuclear weapons or decisions about nuclear weapons in this game, and yet they still almost behaved as if they still existed. So again, a lot of candor in the report, uh, in, and that's an interesting insight. Sure, sure, sure. And and last question before we get to the sort of meat of our conversation, you know, in which I will really ask you to, to talk about the pros and the cons, your critiques, as well as, you know, the praise you have. Um, last question, how are the political decisions of other countries, South Korea, especially Japan, Australia, how are they factored in? Yeah, you know, I was just studying that part of the report, and it, it's particularly fascinating. I mean, that, as far as I can tell, they didn't try to, like, model all of those. Uh, it seemed like they focused on Japan, which is natural to focus on, and, and sure. one of the, you know, I would say the top four conclusions of the report, one of them is just the all-importance of Japan and Japan's decisions on this, you know, determine sort of, in their view, sort of determine the war either way. You know, I have my own thoughts on that, but... Yeah, so- but so iterations that didn't include Japanese participation on Taiwan's side ended in defeat or ended in, what, uh, less uh, optimal outcomes for, for Blue Team, right? Yeah, I think they looked at several iterations of, of Japan's role. One was, you know, total neutrality. Um, you know, presumably that takes off the table, you know, American use of Japanese bases. And, and you know, they basically say that's the end of that, you know. Yeah. there would be no U.S. intervention in that circumstance. And then they say it's also possible that Japan will sort of say, yes, you can use the bases, but Japan's forces will not be active. And then, you know, and then there are gradations of how Japan, how active Japan's forces are going up to, you know, fully engaged. But I think what's interesting here is when they talk about South Korea, Philippines, Vietnam, some of these other countries, and they're, you know, I think they were justifiably cautious, basically said that their expectation is South Korea would be neutral sure, uh, and Philippines as well, which, you know, that that's that's an interesting conclusion. I think I think some may disagree with that, but I myself think that's quite realistic. OK, so excellent. I, I want to spend the rest of our time today just looking at the actual war game, the CSIS war game. I know you have quite a number of critiques, but you also have many good things to say about it. You've said some some very favorable things. I want to start there. What did you find that you liked that was admirable about this this exercise? Well, several things that I really liked about it. And again, I, I, I'm, I'm very glad that this report came out. And I just uh, can't say strongly enough how much I recommend it to colleagues that they not just read the text, but that they read the footnotes, you know, and really go through it carefully. Why? Because it is the best fidelity look, you know, it is the most detailed and thoughtful approach and, and really tries to look through different options um, in, in a reasonably objective way. I'll say that. I think some other things I would say that, that I really liked about the report that it's very candid about mm -hmm. the results. And, and there, you know, I think some of the reporting was pretty accurate. The reports that came out in the press that said, wow, the losses potentially here are, are huge. You know, we're talking potentially tens of thousands of Americans, hundreds of, of U.S. aircraft could be lost, dozens of ships, you know, and, and even more possibly, you know, we'll talk about that, like some of some of their very dark scenarios. But Well, I think the entire Air Force and Navy of Taiwan are lost in, in, in the way this that's plays That's right. Out. And that's, you know, that right there, I think, is meant as a message to Taipei. I mean, frankly, quite accurate uh, uh, from my assessment, too. I, when I saw that, I was surprised because, you know, that's often sort of so let's say American strategists think that they may not say that they're too polite, I think. And in this case, I think they were right to put the truth before being uh, diplomatic. And why do they do that? Because I think there a lot of people are concerned that Taiwan is spending a lot of money on its Air Force and Navy, um, especially over the last 10 years. I think they just uh, launched a, a new ship, at, I think an oiler. Before that, they launched a major amphibious ship. Got to say that these naval ships are completely worthless in the scenario uh, that we're envisaging here. So I, the candor there, I think, is is very welcome. And, you know, they criticize some U.S. Uh, programs as well, I will say that, again, rather brave, I think, 
in the Washington milieu today. I mean, it's not what the Pentagon wants to hear. <laughs> right. I mean, for example, uh, you know, I think the Air Force will be a little, I mean, they'll be happy because the, the report really seems to put a high value on bombers. But uh, yeah. uh, by contrast, they seem to be see fighters as, as not particularly useful, which, you know, that in, in a uh, Air Force generally run by fighter pilots, uh, by the way, the Navy often also run by fighter pilots, you know, that's not going to be a very welcome conclusion. They also are uh, rather tough on, you know, the Army and the Marines have both put forward this concept of using basically HIMARS, which has become famous in Ukraine. Uh, sure. By the way, Asia Pacific security experts knew about HIMARS before it went to Ukraine because for, you know, for more than a decade, we've been talking about how this weapon system might be put on the islands and used to con constrain the Chinese Navy. But I'll tell you uh, that this report is quite dismissive of those capabilities, saying, you know, actually doesn't really make a difference. Once the initial set of missiles have been shot off, how are you going to keep these little island strongholds supplied? So, so they're rather dismissive of that capability. They don't think it's a very important uh, aspect of the campaign. So yeah, well, that falls under the whole, this is not Ukraine kind of. This. Yeah, yeah. And that's another, I, you know, again, one of the top, I think, results that the report underlines, you know, in the introduction and conclusion is that, gosh, we really need to think differently here. This is not Ukraine. And therefore, the idea that you're going to continue to uh, push in supplies at a high level and, and uh, continuously supply the island, that's completely off the table. And they're very uh, clear about that. They're also extremely clear about very heavy U.S. losses, especially to surface ships. And and here they do not, you know, mince words. Uh, they say, you know, if you look, especially the fine print there, the losses are massive. They say in most scenarios, I believe they said in the, within the first couple of turns, the U.S. has lost two aircraft carriers oh, Lord. and, you know, a, a couple of dozen surface ships. That's, you know, those are devastating losses. You know, I can say, um, I think uh, I taught a naval war college for years. Many of my students would be on those ships, uh, you know, that that would be, you know, it's almost unimaginable. Those are World War II type losses. Um, by the way, there many people have, uh, including myself, have said that submarines are the key to the whole campaign. They're they're a little less, uh, they're more cautious. They say that submarines actually, while important, are not decisive really because uh, they have a, a small magazine actually. Uh, a magazine is the, you know, how many munitions you can carry aboard. And sure. the truth is submarines have very limited magazine and uh therefore you know their firepower is inherently limited but but yeah I, I have a lot of good things to say about this study i have a lot of critiques as well but i i again congratulate the authors on their incredible work i think you know a couple of the things that i i would note that uh are important is you know they do call this the first battle uh there is really this isn't how the entire thing plays out right i mean they're they're very clear about that that this is just the first encounter, a, a turn uh, you alluded to us losing two aircraft carriers in the first turn, uh, first two turns. A turn is only what thirty six hours in this game, I believe. So seventy two hours. It's just yeah. I mean, it's oh it's devastating. These are devastating losses, I think. And um, one of the other assumptions you you mentioned this assumption, and I think this is good that they built this. I mean, it would have been unmanageable to do otherwise, perhaps. But I'm I I know this may be part of your critique as well, the whole nuclear question, and, and maybe we can get to that, but I, just maybe on the, in the plus column, I would maybe note that, um, you know, they, they do assume that any strike on the mainland just elevates the risk of, of, of nuclear escalation just sort of unacceptably, right? So there are no strikes on the Chinese mainland in this scenario. Well, I, I don't know if I'd be that emphatic. They, they kind of, throughout, they the authors are saying they believe that the best approach to the United States is to to go into planning with the more or less with the idea that they will not conduct strikes and, and generally will not overfly the mainland either. And they say, you know, they talk about escalation and they talk about that players were, were concerned with that. But there are also several parts of the report where they say, well, actually, we may have to as it were, overrule that, or, or certainly there will be a temptation to do that. I can give you some examples, but I, I think generally, yes, I, I mean, look, I, I think that they're very candid about this, about how they've taken nuclear decision-making off the table, you know, and that 
that's good to be honest about that. And I certainly understand it, but I must say, you know, I'm a little disturbed though. If we, if we get in the mode where we consider it likely that, you know, for one, that there could be a war with China and nuclear weapons wouldn't be used, but maybe not. And, you know, the, again, the authors are quite candid about this. And I think in like the last couple of pages of the report, they say nobody knows what would happen. And that's right. Yeah. And I'm afraid it could be substantially worse even than, you know, if you read the pages of international security and whatnot, you know, a lot of articles recently about inadvertent escalation to nuclear war. You know, that that means like nobody intends for there to be use of nuclear weapons, but somehow it just happens because, you know, some radars are knocked out or satellites are knocked out and that just gets the ball rolling. But that's not how I see it. I, I think you could have advertent escalation. That is, either side is losing and opts to use a you know a nuclear warning shot or or limited use to convey that the you know the war needs to end. You know, if you will, a uh, escalate to de-escalate that approach. Hmm. We heard a lot about that in Ukraine. Um, so I'm I'm just concerned by the whole idea that we can assume nuclear weapons out. I mean, I certainly understand why it has to be done at some level. And you have to try to understand what war looks like without. But then we don't. We just don't know if nuclear weapons would be used or not. And and by the way, China is building up its nuclear forces in a very robust way. I put it to a, a very senior strategist in Shanghai when I was in China uh, back in uh, April. I said, "Why is China building up its nuclear weapons so rapidly?" He he looked at me and said, "We're preparing for the worst case scenario on Taiwan." You know, wow. and uh, that that to me uh, really hit hard. I mean, and and I have not heard Chinese strategy. That wasn't the only time I heard something like that in, when I was in China, and I I saw a lot of, as it were, flashing signals there. And that th- this is very disturbing, and and we ought to keep this in the forefront of our minds. So I'm a little, you know, I understand why it was done, but I also feel, you know, that we absolutely in every circumstance have to remind ourselves by the way when this was rolled out at a january 9th uh, it's a recorded video i think you can find it on youtube when this report was rolled out you could see some disagreement actually among the experts gathered sure. there about the nuclear risks uh, they you know one of the presenters there a former general was very you know he said well we, we just have to call their bluff you know and and not worry about it and <laughs> if you attack the mainland so be it while other presenters were much more cautious and i would be on on the cautious side there i i think we nuclear escalation is is so dangerous that we had better play a cost i also want to say with respect to your point on the first battle title uh it is a striking title it is an important title and i think a lot of you know i myself sort of went into the report without reflecting too much on the title but here's here's my problem with it at the same time as calling this the first battle we call it a war game and throughout the you know, throughout the report, it is referred to as a war game. Shouldn't it be called a battle game? Mm. Right. And so we kind of lose sight of that. And I'm just saying, psychologically, reading through this whole thing, we we treat it as if we're talking about the war. We're not talking about the war. Right. So so if it was a true war game, it would model the, the war to conclusion. It doesn't. There's no theory of termination. And a, a very fine, uh, experienced uh, specialist, Lonnie Henley, stood up at that January 9th gathering at the, you can see that on YouTube, and said, hey, where's the how does this war end? Because you just said how maybe this, you know, China's amphibious invasion maybe is defeated, but you didn't explain how the war ends. And and I think this is a huge problem. And I'm, what I'm saying is that the costs of this uh, war could be could be many times greater than what is discussed in the report. Hmm. Right. So so in effect, we sh- I guess not to uh, nitpick, but we might call this a, instead of a war game, it's a battle game. Fair enough. I mean, I think, yeah, the, the fact that they, they do bring up, though, I mean, they, they remind us periodically through the report that this is about the first battle and that it is not about the war. I mean, I'm not sure what else, what more they could have done to, to, to reinforce that point, but I take your point. I, I see how... Well, hold on. You do, you do see occasionally this kind of odd reference. We can talk about what they call the, the sort of the most pessimistic scenario, which they hit somewhere on sort of page 99. So you have to read well into the report. But in that very uh, dark scenario, you know, at one point they, they, they basically say the U.S. losses are huge. And then they say the game was called. But what does that mean? Game was called. You know, <laughs> it, 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 I guess it means everybody was tired and depressed. Um, but like, you know, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, we don't. Game over, man. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess if you iterate this 24 times, you can't possibly. And, and I think the, somewhere it says in the report that you could have thousands, even millions of, of variations if you, if you continue to. 
and it's it, they have to make this realistic. But still, I, I yeah, I mean, have and, to and, keep and, in mind that a war could be a decade of war. It could be maybe the first war. There could be another war or a third war. This has to, when we talk about superpowers going to war, as we are here, we better keep that in mind. So, at the risk of getting a little bit too much into the, some of the, the military nitty gritty, I do want to ask you about you know your your take on the amphibious assault in general. I mean, I, I think you have a, a, a pretty different set of conclusions or assumptions than the authors did. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And I, you know, in general, I, I'm afraid some of their assumptions could be questionable here. Um, and by the way, I, I do feel strongly that they, they underestimate the, the number of U.S. Navy ships that might be sunk, unfortunately, you know, but you, you can look at their, some of their numbers when they talk about the success of anti-ship missiles. And I see things like they're crediting the Chinese with something like a 3% hit rate, 3%. Well, that, you know, to me, that's, that would be wildly optimistic. But let me return to this issue of amphibious. Mm-hmm. If, what does the Chinese amphibious fleet look like? And, and why do I think there's a problem here uh, in the report? And, and here they're, they're very crisp about this. They say, look, the Chinese have about 96 large amphibious ships of various kinds. Those are the main ships of concern. And they, by the way, they include in that sort of row-row ferries. Just a quick note, row-row means roll-on, roll-off. Uh, but they say it comes down to this number 96 and say if they sink, you know, uh, some good portion of those 60 or 80 of those ships, uh, that's feasible for U.S. forces. And that's the whole invasion, folks. I disagree. Uh, I think a lot of uh, Chinese soldiers will get to Taiwan by parachute or by helicopter. And I, they're very uh, dismissive of that possibility, I think. But the larger problem is this, Kaiser, is that China has a massive merchant fleet, a massive coast guard, a massive fishing fleet. And there's good evidence that all of this will be very strongly engaged uh, in this endeavor. And by the way, check out a report uh, by Lonnie Henley. I've recommended him before, but he has a report at Naval War College published by Naval War College in May 2022, where he says this effort to use the merchant fleet, civilian shipping, uh, is the backbone of the invasion. His evidence is very good. He says it's not a stopgap. This is not like just trying to fill a hole here, but this is rather their preferred approach. And I agree with that. Uh, Of course, it's somewhat deceptive, right? And here I'm talking about thousands of ships out there. And that changes the whole equation, right? There's not 96 ships you have to hit. There are thousands. Reverse Dunkirk. Yeah. And that invalidates this. Uh, I think there could be 5,000. I think there could be even 10,000 ships in a variety of different armadas. And there's just no way you can do uh, targeting for that problem. And they're willing to take huge casualties. Now, by the way, the the authors kind of dismissed that possibility by saying, actually, that this was tried at Gallipoli. Folks, do you know about Gallipoli? This is not a good, you know, this happened a long time ago. They were, you know, they were using rowboats back then. So I don't believe that's a good... uh, you know, use of history there. I think that's a mistake, uh, a major mistake in the report. And and we have to conceptualize that this, the armada that China would invade with much, much larger. You also take issue with the emphasis they place on on bombers, on long range bombers as sort of the main weapon in, in the American air arsenal. Uh, what's, what's your problem with that, with that claim? Well, here, I, you know, I, my analysis generally has tended to focus on submarines and, and I, here we, I, quite agree with the uh, report's conclusions on submarines. I mean, they say that submarines cannot uh, be decisive here because of, like we talked about those small magazines. There are other problems with submarines too, you know, mines we've talked about uh, in other uh, fora and and uh, the, the reload of the submarine is very difficult uh, as well. Um, and the numbers are not adequate. But for bombers here, you know, somehow um, these uh, authors really alight on bombers as the key capability. And I just, I don't see that. Uh, the U.S. bomber force is, is, first of all, not very large. And there are many other problems with this as well. The bombers have to get reasonably close to launch these mun- munitions. Uh, and China's fighters have a lot of uh, endurance. They, they have a large uh, combat radius. They can get out pretty far. So this will be, you know, I would say a hot environment for our fighters. And let me say, they will definitely go after the tankers, right? Our bombers can only operate if they're supported by tankers. Chinese know that, and they will go go right after targeting those tankers, and they will target them at a distance. I mean, you know, the, again, the, the gamers the, in this report, they're quite dismissive of China's ability to reach out 
Uh, I could easily see uh, a submarine getting off of Alaska and hitting our major uh, Air Force base in Alaska, for example. But the same thing could happen in Hawaii if Guam, of course, would be targeted. Well, that's an attack on the mainland, though. That's oh, a- yes. Yes. I mean, this is something I think is quite uh, quite possible uh, and because they know that they would have to target these bombers. And I think they could um, uh, do so rather successfully. Um, now, those bombers also you have to think about the munitions they're shooting. And here the authors are quite specific and they admit that the number of munitions right now that they expect in 2026 is something around 400 uh, or 50, I believe, of these specialized munitions. By the way, these munitions, uh, they're called El-Rasm, not a very long range, any ship missile. Um, these missiles are subsonic, right? Subsonic mm-hmm. missiles can be targeted. They're coming down rather predictable vectors. The Chinese know that. Chinese have exercised very frequently with like point defense, you know, basically putting as much uh, metal into the sky as you can and and downing some of those. So I don't think there will be a high effectiveness for these munitions. And I think there are plenty of countermeasures and China will go all out um, getting its fighter force out there uh, beyond Taiwan to form a shield, uh, which I think will be quite effective. And then there's the biggest problem, which alludes to the point I just made about the number of targets, right? Now, if you only have to destroy 90 ships or 80 ships, well, okay, maybe the bomber force could be decisive. But if the number is more like 800 or 8,000 ships, no, there's absolutely no way that, you know, this is a, a drop in the bucket effectively. Uh, so I, I would strongly disagree with the conclusion that the bomber force will be decisive. Lyle, what did you make of their assumptions about the way that decisions or political decisions are made in the allied capitals in in the United States, in in D.C., and in in Tokyo? I tended to focus more on on things I know a lot about, uh, the the systems going at each other. So that was kind of where I put my focus. But but my thoughts on on the decision-making calculus, I frankly, I was a little bit disturbed how the tone there, because it, um, although I you know, I, I suppose the simulation is quite realistic, but when we think about sort of truncated decision making, meaning, you know, Mr. President, you got to make this decision whether we're whether we're in or not, whether we, you know, whether our forces can go right into combat or not. When you make those decisions, they seem to suggest very clearly as part of their findings that that the U.S. and Taiwan are much better off, you know, in, in to to assure a win you need those decisions made extremely quickly, okay? Um, and to me, that it, it did feel very unrealistic. And in fact, you know, I don't recall any mention in the report of, of you know, whether the War Powers Resolution or, you know, the constitutional uh, issue of, of the fact that the Congress, you know, this would be a war, folks. Uh, clearly, the Congress uh, should be involved in, in my perspective. And by the way, that goes for Japan too. Um, and at one point, I, I recall I went over this... Uh, the other day, their assessment of Japanese decision making, they said this is fully within the um, the powers of the prime minister of Japan to make this decision. So it all depends on on him or her. But actually, I, I think that is a vast simplification, as I understand of Japanese politics. And I, I, I believe there would be uh, the courts might play a role in the Japanese case, right? Because there are some complications mm. with the peace constitution. Uh, and I also, uh, you know, I don't doubt that the Japanese. Uh, uh, legislature would would also seek to be involved. This is democracy, after all. So what I'm saying is, I, I think that you know, while from a war planners or or if you will, from a from a military point of view, you always want the decision to made as be made without delay. But but yet, I I just don't think that's how politics work really. And and given what we've seen on Ukraine, where decisions have evolved, let's say a lot, and uh, they started out very cautious, and you know, especially when we're talking about two nuclear powers potentially going to war. You know, if we took the Ukraine lesson, I think we have to say that, that it's very unlikely that the, the U.S. and Japan will both jump in with two feet on, you know, at that immediate moment. Lyle, you also take issue, I believe, with this assumption that we would have at least two weeks of sort of unambiguous warning that this would, was, was coming, that this would be, you know, well, I, I know you've probably read John Culver's report in, uh, in the uh, Carnegie Endowment for National Peace. Uh, but you think that there wouldn't necessarily be any anything like that kind of a long warning? Can you can you break that out yeah, a little bit? Yeah, yeah. And I noticed uh, Culver's essays is cited in the uh, in the CSIS report, and I think most 
people agree with Culver as it was a well-received piece. I don't, uh, you know, I take issue with it. I, I have a lot of respect for him, but here I think he's, he's quite off the mark. Uh, I would, I w- and of course he argued that we would have months of warning. Now right. in the report, they say, well, that's might you know, the Chinese might, uh, be, be able to orchestrate something more uh, devious or if you will, uh, more, uh, deceptive any anyway so they they think not not months but they think days uh you know 14 days at least they really think 30 days and they say 14 days of unambiguous warning but my in my view uh i think we will can expect just a few hours and maybe not at all uh that's my view and you know i i'm happy to give you my uh where that assessment comes from but just in a nutshell i would say look we have a whole history of Chinese, uh, you know, pattern of this where they have uh, been very successful at uh, deception. You know, you know, since I said uh, all warfare is deception. Uh, but look at, you know, Korea. We were completely surprised when they uh, entered the war against India. They were also completely surprised. So this is, I think we can say. Yeah, that- but we didn't have satellites that back then we didn't have, you know, nearly the kind of, you know, even the the yes. the, the OSINT that we have now. We Yeah, we had a lot of. Uh, capability, though I, you know, I really owned the air, and and we had, you know, uh, people on the ground in Korea and all that. So I, I don't think that's a such a good excuse. But I, you know, on the other hand, I think China also has vast, you know, apparatus for, uh, you know, creating deception. I talked, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Chinese ports like Dalian, Qingdao, and so forth, and and you know, it's incredible the the scope of. Uh, not only of the merchant fleet, the fishing fleet, and, and all these just, you know, vast warehouses everywhere. But let me put it also to you this way, that, you know, when we're talking about air and missile forces, I mean, these are very, you know, quickly deployed. And most of the forces are already in place. The same goes for, in my view, for heliborne and airborne forces that, you know, again, it's a matter of hours uh, pushing it forward. Then I think what I would expect is what I call a rolling start. And a rolling start begins with these, you know, missile, air, drone, heliborne attacks. And it's only then, once that is underway, and there's fi- you know substantial fighting on the island. I think tens of thousands of uh, PLA troops on the island, brought you know by parachute or helicopter or you know special boats, whatever. Only then, then the uh, only uh, then is the full full call up, and the things begin to go aboard ships. But you know, if you look at D-Day, uh, every one hundred fifty thousand uh, troops and and all their equipment went aboard in just five days. So. You know, I, I actually think the Chinese would be much more efficient than they were on D-Day. Why? Because, you know, D-Day was put together in about a year and a half. Uh, China's been planning this for decades and has the most advanced ports in the world. So I, I suspect uh, rather that these ships would be loaded very quickly. And, you know, another thing, you know, we could talk about this all day, but another aspect of this here, well, I would say they've also normalized this pattern of, um, of exercises. And actually, just today, uh, there was a piece in the New York Times. It's August 11th in the, in the Times, a piece by Chris Buckley, I think, that talked about how, you know, these exercises have become so common that the Taiwan forces have sort of said, well, you know, we're not going to intercept. It's too expensive to try to intercept all these. So, so it's become rather normal for a large quantity of uh, Chinese ships and planes to be sort of you know, circling the island at any given time. And, of course, that can quickly go into the, the real thing. Um, so, you know, I'm somebody who thinks, um, uh, oh yeah, one, one final thing I'll say here is I've, I've looked a lot at how, you know, China has actually studied Normandy a lot. Hmm. And by the way, they studied Inchon and Inchon is, 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 is almost more interesting. Their conclusion on Inchon, this was the famous, uh, MacArthur's famous invasion, sure. um, in September, 1950, where he really turned the tables with a brilliant, you know, operation. But he, but they literally said, you know, the reason Inchon succeeded is because they nobody thought they could do it there, and that's why it was successful. So right. you go with the unexpected, and I think I, I'm convinced that Chinese strategists fully understand that surprise is the key to the entire operation. So they will go all in on surprise. That's why you know I almost find it comical when I hear my colleagues saying, "Well, you know, I'm reading the tone of this latest." editorial in PLA Daily, and it sounds very, you know, chill. Okay, so I guess, you know, they won't go tomorrow. They're looking, and, and they also, there's an expectation in the game, and here I I don't agree with this, in the CSIS game, they say they expect, you know, there will be about a month of crisis or something preceding the attack. I don't see it that way. I think China uh, is wise to this and knows that to get full surprise, they, they don't want to act in the middle of crisis. They'll, they will act 
you know, essentially as a bolt from the blue. That's my expectation. And it's, it's driven by the military imperative of surprise or amphibious attacks. In an interview that Chaz Freeman did some, I guess it was more than a year ago, he had talked about, I mean, we were talking about uh, Admiral Davidson and, and the suggestion of 2027. And, and he said the most likely moment for a Chinese sur- surprise attack would be after November 2024. He thinks that, you know, it's when there's sort of this moment of where we momentarily are kind of incapacitated. We don't, we have a, uh, a presidency in transition. Or, you know, in, in the immediate aftermath of January 20th or Inauguration Day. That, that's the danger period. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, we can think about a variety of danger periods, you know. Um, I mean, by the way, uh, Hawaii is going through a terrible crisis right now, right? It's a lot of distraction in a major base area, you know. Uh, I mean, uh, probably not the actual bases, but, but you know, I'm just saying one can imagine uh, Chinese leaders saying, well, you know, we got these variety of opportunities, what kind of opportunities they are, you know, ranging from something going on in the Persian Gulf, let's say, to some massive storm, you know, knocking out power on the east coast of the U.S. You know, we can imagine a variety of uh, issues that might play into this decision. But yes, I think, you know, I'll give you an example here. Again, I mentioned the Sino-Indian War. There's a reason why not many American strategists are that familiar with it because it happened during the Cuban, Cuban missile, missile crisis, and yeah. and the U.S. was fully distracted during that, and right. China knew it, and and therefore was able to act, you know, very uh, robustly and without any concern. And and actually, the Indians did there were you know the cable from from Nehru to Kennedy, you know, please send help now. Not you know the phone was not answered at all because uh, Kennedy was very tied up. So I could imagine and. There, I do think there's a danger with Ukraine. If Ukraine, if the Ukraine war continues to escalate and so forth, or continues to, you know, go in unexpected directions, that China could use that. Uh, clearly, they know that a lot of uh, U.S. effort, you know, say intelligence effort, for example, you know, there's only, you know, finite capabilities to, you know, watch closely, and a lot of that is now directed at uh, Russia, of course. You're going to find yourself quoted by Bridge Colby in a second. Okay. <laughs> I've had hey. some. I've gone around the bend with uh, with Bridge. Uh, he, he's very smart, but we disagree on a lot of things. Yeah, I've he, I've had some funny encounters with him as well. Mm-hmm. So your overall top level worry then is that without reading the fine print, as it were, policymakers or you know influential media outlets or personalities or, or maybe even key people in the national security establishment are going to come away though with too sanguine a view. On, on, you know, what the upshot is, what the, 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 the casualties would be, what the results would be, that this is ultimately doable. Is, is, that, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, that is kind of the disturbing feeling I get after reading the report carefully is, is that I feel like the authors have ultimately come down and said, look, you know, this would be hard, but if we make, you know, a few critical decisions, we don't actually, they, they actually say we don't need to radically expand the defense budget uh, we just need to invest in these, you know, several capabilities. Um, you know, like I said, they, they favor bombers. They want to see a lot more munitions uh, put on these bombers. Um, I'm quite skeptical of, of some of their recommendations there. Um, and, and, and also, I do think that the estimates there, as far as losses, are far too optimistic favoring the United States. That is, uh, unfortunately, although, you know, they're presented as sort of catastrophic losses, you know, hundreds of aircraft, dozens of ships, I'm afraid it could be considerably worse, Kaiser. That, that's my evaluation of their assumptions, you know, looking at some of the numbers that go into their assumptions and that just based on my own research of some of China's countermeasures. So in a nutshell, if you could summon the, uh, National Security Advisor, the Joint Chiefs, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the President himself, get them to sit down and, and you know, you give them your take on, on what comes out of this war game, what would you say? You get your chance to rewrite the executive summary. Oh, goodness. Well, you know, um, I think, and, and by all means, we should, we should hear what the authors have to say themselves. You know, again, they refer you to that YouTube uh, presentation they made on January 9th of 2023. But, but yeah, I mean, my take is that I agree that the war could be devastating. 
But I think if we take that sober look, which we got from this report, and then inject some additional uncertainty, especially given the nuclear risks, but also I would say, have we perhaps underestimated the lethality of some of China's uh, weapons? I, I think, unfortunately, that that may be the case. So losses could be considerably greater, in my view, than this report says. I think losses could be even double or triple what they uh, project. And I'm, I'm, I'd like to back that up with, with some evidence, if you'll permit. But given all that, I, I believe that the United States should be extremely circumspect about this. And by the way, the Japanese as well. And should, you know, reflect a little less on, you know, what magic capability they can produce to solve this problem. Because after all, that that's our go-to idea. This is a tough situation. What technology can we invent to solve? And that's how Americans do things. But, you know, that didn't work in Vietnam. It didn't work in Afghanistan, and it's not going to work here. This is a bridge too far. That's my view. And we should recognize that and take a much more realistic view. And that means having a very robust diplomatic track to help Taiwan preserve its autonomy, to keep with strategic ambiguity, maintain the one China policy, and really use diplomacy, which I, you know, we can talk about that. That's not really discussed in there in this CSIS report, but it's critically important and pursue some sort of reassurance on that count. But from a defense point of view, I think we can make some prudent investments, draw red lines that are realistic further back, realize that the Pacific is very big and wide, that Japan and Philippines are not under grave threat. Taiwan is under grave threat, but, but our treaty allies are not. And, you know, reconsider and play this very cautiously. Lyle Goldstein, thank you so much for joining me again on Seneca and for sharing your informed views on this war game and on, on other subjects. It was just great to have you on again, man. Thank you so much, Kaiser. Really glad to join you. Let's move on now to recommendations. But first, a very quick couple of reminders. First, don't forget that our next China conference is in New York on November 2nd, uh, the uh, Midtown East area near the UN. Lovely event space. Uh, You can get tickets now. It is going to be a fantastic conference. Great speakers like Yasheng Huang and uh, Evan Feigenbaum. Lots of folks from government, from major think tanks from the media world, from academia, and from industry. It's going to be quite star-studded. Uh, some very deep, very heady panels that we've got planned, deep dive breakout sessions on super important topics, and even a kind of Jeopardy-like game show that I will be hosting at the end of the day. I will also be taping a live Seneca episode along with Jeremy on the evening of November 1st in New York, the exact location and guest TBD. So sign up for that as well if you can. And if you can't come to the conference, but you still want to support the work that we're doing, please take a moment and become an access member of the China Project. You get our daily dispatch newsletter, you get early access to Seneca, and much more, all for the cost of three or four cups of coffee a month. All right, on to recommendations. Lyle Goldstein, what do you have for us? Well, thanks, guys. Um, I'm... Uh... I'm a little reticent here to share my recommendation just because I I feel like this has probably been said before, but just in case, I I must recommend uh, the, uh, you know, I live in uh, southern New England here, and uh, I must say that the best Chinese museum presentation I'm aware of around here is at the uh, Peabody Essex Museum in uh, Salem, Massachusetts. Hmm. And uh, they have this incredible exhibit. They took an incredible uh, uh, well, almost a palace, transported it, the entire thing from uh, Anhui province and deposited it inside the museum. And it makes a stunning uh, courtyard. And if you haven't seen that, you, you must see it. It's it's uh, having been to Anhui myself and seen some of these gorgeous villages. This is a very faith- faithful uh, take on it. And it really gives a um, just a wonderful view of Chinese aesthetics and the design and philosophy and history. And so, uh, and it's, and of course, the, all the research surrounding it and how they moved the, uh, this uh, wonderful uh, piece of architecture over. It's called Yinyutan, and it's uh, just stunning. So please uh, make the time and go see. I, by the way, I used to parade uh, Naval War College faculty through there so that they would deepen their understanding of you know, how Chinese uh, think about aesthetics and design. Lyle, that has not been recommended on Seneca before, and it's a fantastic recommendation. There was no reason at all for you to be reticent about it. That's great, man. I'm 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 anxious. I want to I want to get get up there. And yeah, check Salem, out Massachusetts. Now. Yeah, outside Boston. Yeah, you can, you can check out the Witch uh, Museum through there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. 
All right. So I want to recommend something once again. Actually, uh, I've, I've recommended, I think, bits and pieces of this before. I'm not sure I've ever recommended the whole thing, but the, the series The Story of Civilization by Will Durant with the, the later volumes co-written with his wife, Ariel Durant. Uh, growing up, I think every family I knew like, had a set of these along with you know, their world book or, or Britannica's. I didn't know many people who actually read them, though. And I guess, you know, you know, when I was a child, it just never sort of occurred to me. They were so thick and so daunting, and I, I just never pulled any of them down and really flipped through them. I started doing that in, in high school. I, I read uh, The Age of Faith, which is the fourth volume of Eleven, just because I was, I think I was writing a paper on the Crusades or something. But then I realized it was just so, so well-written and so interesting, so engaging, that I just I devoured the whole thing. I only revisited them maybe a decade or so ago, and then I actually set a goal of reading all of them. And so I've, I've done that. I've, I listened to most of them. I, I've read some of them in print, but most of them are, were available, you know, more and more of them were became available on Audible as audiobooks, and they're just a delight. I mean, they're, they're just so fun to listen to. I mean, I, I long drives or on flights or whatever, walking the dog or cooking or doing the dishes or, or all those mundane things that you do where you can have a pair of, of, of earphones in. Well, these days, it's, you know, I listen to audiobooks as I practice archery. I try to practice for an hour or so a day, and I, I listen to them. But they're just a, an absolute joy. There's all sorts of really sly, often pretty risque humor. He's just very funny. And just as a pro stylist, Will Durant was just, just amazing. So I, I recently finished... Two of them, I revisited two just because I, I I was on this sort of thirty years war kick I, I talked about a little bit ago, and I decided to sort of you know read the Reformation and then the Age of Reason begins, which covers that that it's actually in that one that thirty years war is is covered, but all the wars of religion and you know the the, the reigns of of uh, Elizabeth and. Uh, and the the early stewards and stuff. It's it's great stuff. It's it's amazing stuff. So I um last night just just for the hell of it, I just started listening to our Oriental Heritage, which is the very first one, which I haven't gotten back to in a long time. But just the opening essays of that, I mean, maybe that that'll be my more focused focused recommendation. The the early chapters of that, there are these real you know essays on civilization and. Uh, this was published in 1935, so it, it's, it's, it reads like it. It's, it's dated, and it's interesting because, you know, this is before the Second War, but, you know, still in the aftermath of the First. Um, I mean, there are references to Versailles and things like that. Lots of things that are wrong with Audible.com, I, I know, and I, I, I find them, you know, problematic as the monopsony that they are. But it just is amazing to me that for one credit, you can actually, for, you know, 10 bucks or whatever, you can listen to 50-plus hours of this amazing, high-quality narration of brilliant, you know, historical writing. It's just, it's a miracle. Anyway, uh, that's my recommendation, Will and Arnold Durant. It just never gets old. I just, I, I love their stuff so much. Lyle, thank you once again for joining me. Thanks, Kaiser. It's been a real uh, pleasure talking with you. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Yeah, sobering stuff, too, uh, that... Uh, I will put a link to the report. And once again, if uh, Messrs. Cancion, either Phil or Pear are listening, or if Mr. Hagenbotham wants to get in touch, I would, I would be delighted to talk to you more about this war game and the report. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Sitter, as it's now called, or on Blue Sky, or I think we're on all of them now, Blue Sky and, and Threads, or on Facebook at, at The China Proj. And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.